0: Hello, and welcome to episode three of series two of the Safer Fantasy Crafting podcast. And uh, this podcast hopefully will just be a shorter, bite sized podcast as a response to some call ins I got from Jason of uh, the uh, Nerds RPG Variety Cast in response to my little podcast about romance in role playing games. Um, to be honest, that little that little podcast of mine was really just a bit of a throwaway podcast to test some uh, sound editing and mixing techniques. Um but um Jason did send some some messages to me, some sincere messages in good faith and uh, thoughtful messages and I and they got me thinking and I think they probably deserve a more sincere and thoughtful response uh from myself. So um I'll just uh, let you hear Jason's responses to that that podcast and then I'll try and Give him an equally sincere and thoughtful reply.
1: Hey, for Jason here.
0: Just want to comment
1: that I find your arguments against romance and fantasy gaming very compelling. I think they were strong, well thought out, you know, well, well presented. But I want to present you a counterpoint. And this might take more than the one minute message that Anchor allows. So I ask that you, you know, indulge me. So, we're playing in a game of Barbarians of Lemuria. If you're not familiar with that, it's a fantasy game, Sword and Sorcery, meant to evoke the Sword and Sorcery pulps like Conan and Thongar and all those Conan pastiches. But in that game, once you gather treasure, you have to go and blow it all at the end of the adventure to get experience. So you don't get any experience till you've blown all the treasure that you've recovered during the adventure. And I mentioned this on my podcast, but I'll mention again, the story again briefly. We had finished the an adventure, and we were at a bar blowing our ill-gotten game. And one of the party members attracted the eyes of this attractive lass at the bar. And she looked like an adventurous type of Larry of sorts, if you will. Actually, I think she's more of a piratist. But anyway, point being that is this sexist? I, I guess just a pirate and attract a pirate. Anyhow, point being that she attracted his eye and they got to talking and little known to him at the time, or us at the time, she was a demon and she entranced him because we had recovered an artifact and she wanted to get her hands on that artifact. Well, that, so we went through a whole adventure and we dealt with that whole situation. But if we didn't have romance in our games, we would have lost out on that wonderful story opportunity. And, and while you can do creepy things with succubi and nymphs and things like that, you don't have to. And and in this case, you know, there's no bedroom scene. There's nothing like that. There was just, she seduced him, and the player of course, who's a great player, Brian, he played into it, and he's, oh, he came back to us, you know, oh boys, I found the girl I'm gonna marry, and, you know, I, I hope you wish me well, and what are you gonna give us for a wedding gift? And, and we convinced him we had to go back in the dungeon to get more gold to you know buy him the appropriate wedding and anyway that's how we end up saving him but point being it doesn't have to be creepy to be in the game but if it's not in the game you lose on some story opportunities so i hope those accepted in the spirit it's presented and i hope you the best and it's great to hear you back on the air take care my friend
0: okay well then um, thank you there jason thank you for those messages and uh, first of all, thank you for recognizing the 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 tongue in cheek nature uh, of my original podcast. Um, it wasn't meant entirely seriously, but um, I appreciate your messages because they have they give me a chance to reconsider things, and, and 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 I quite like the things that you presented, and I and I think the the scenario that you presented was quite an intelligent use of romance within role playing games, and. Um, I'll I'll perhaps come back to that later on. But as a more sincere and genuine response uh, to your calling, I think I'd like to start off saying, uh, for me, I think romance is probably, questions of romance and sexuality and love, it's probably a sliding scale of things. I I think there's a sliding scale of these issues uh, and influences, and that I think we're probably all on different points on that sliding scale. So I... I imagine at one end of the scale there's sort of pure familial love, uh, perhaps like a non-sexual love, and I might, you could possibly include love of God on that, but I'm not a religious person, so I couldn't really speak of that. And then moving down the scale, you've got sort of true love, which is the start of sexual love, and then you've got other forms of romance leading on into then, say, sexuality, and ultimately at the far end of the scale leading to just smut and filth, and or perhaps should I say... Perhaps fetishizations and um, perhaps sexual violence at the end. But um, for me personally, I am quite far on the other end of the scale of what I can tolerate and what I can appreciate on romance uh, within games. So perhaps I shouldn't include familial, pure, platonic love on this scale because there's, there's no sexuality in it, there's no romance in it. But I just wanted to mention that because that's pretty much where my position is, what what sort of things I value. I, I really I really like um things ideas of familiar love like the love of a a mother for her child and the love of a family man for his family. And uh, I think they're great plot hooks and motivating uh themes for adventures in games. Um I, I love the idea of say the the, the mother who goes in search of a lost child, or the, the the family man who goes, who sets out to seek revenge for his murdered family. Um, not only can I accept these things, I actually really like them, and I think it's because I I like my heroes to have reasons to go adventuring. I I quite like. I mean, to misphrase, uh, misquote Churchill and William Shakespeare, you know, some some people are, are born to heroism. Some people achieve heroism, and some people have heroism thrust upon them. And I really appreciate the kind of people who have heroes heroism thrust upon them, because it's, you know... I never really liked the original sort of D&D style of adventuring, where a whole load of glory-hunting, treasure-seeking posers just rock up to some dungeon, like... Like the the, the Seven Dwarfs in Snow White. So, like, hey-ho, hey-ho, it's off to village we go. I, You know, I... I never liked that motivation as the basis of an adventure. Although one of the things I did like about original D and D was how brutal, brutal and ruthless it was about those sort of attitudes. That you know, you'd rock up to the the dungeon all full of yourself, full of glory, thinking yourself really cool and looking great, and then as soon as you entered the dungeon, you'd get your ass handed to you on a plate, and uh, you'd get a very quick lesson in the futility of glory hunting and treasure seeking. Uh, um, so I used to appreciate that as a sort of poetic justice type thing. Um, I think the difference between, uh, say, having, you know, seeking heroism and having heroism thrust upon you is, it puts me in mind of that film, uh, is it Uncommon Valor, with um, Gene Hackman and Patrick Swayze, Uh, where Gene Hackman plays a a, a colonel, a veteran of, I think, the Vietnam War. And... um, he, he believes his son has been captured and has been held in a prison of war camp. Uh, and he wants to gather a team to go and try and rescue him. And uh, the the US Army won't help, so he has to get his own team together. So he, he gathers a team of old grizzled veterans. Uh, some of them soldiers that he fought alongside himself. Some just, uh, you know, uh, well-established soldiers and others... And there's one, there's Patrick Swayze, who plays this green marine recon rookie character. And whereas the other soldiers are all grizzled, down the wool veterans, um, Swayze comes across as this sort of slick, clean-by-the-book, boot-licking sort of glory hunter uh, who doesn't have a reason to be there and all the other all the other soldiers the veterans take an instant dislike to him he's, he's got all these fancy martial art moves so he's got all these fancy martial art moves and um it takes it's there's an instant tension between the two between him and the rest of the group and it, and it and it comes to a head where the fight breaks out between this really big i don't know who the actor was or what the name of the character was this really real grizzly bear type of a uh, character um and Swayze and Swayze goes into all this fancy martial arts and uh, the veteran has a few moves of his own and he just basically and but also through just brute force he just smashes um, Swayze onto the floor and and it's only then when Swayze's beaten that he, there's a sense of desperation comes into him he sort of jumps up almost crying shouting you won't stop me from this mission and then the the veteran puts him down again and, and demands why do you want to get yourself killed you know what's the matter with you and, Gene Hapman breaks in at that point and says it's because his father's missing in action. And it just changes the character instantly. He goes from this glory-hunting, vainglorious um, po- poser into just a scared little boy who's looking for his father. And And it just changes the way the character is perceived, both by the audience and by the rest of the team. And then when Gene Hackman reveals that, the guy who's just beaten on the floor picks him up, puts him over his shoulder and carries him back to camp. And then he's accepted as part of the team. And so I think those sort of plot hooks are great. And, and, I, and I love that sort of type of relationship between that, that loyalty, that sense of brotherhood or sisterhood. And perhaps I shouldn't include it on the scale of romance, but it's, 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 that's the kind of thing where I'm really at. But once we go on to romance, and I'll, and I'll perhaps suggest, below though that level of, uh, relationship is sort of like true love, and that's probably really on because there is sexuality within true love, and yes, like you say, I mean, how can I deny the influence of true love and the power of true love as a, as a thematic element in story, not just in role playing games, uh, or even in fantasy fiction, but in all f- fiction, you know, it's it's a really powerful, it's a cornerstone of storytelling, isn't it? And uh, so you, you know, true love. We're talking, perhaps uh, Perseus and Andromeda. We're talking Romeo and Juliet, and yes, perhaps uh, Wesley and Princess Buttercup. And uh, yes, you did hear me right there. I did just link, uh, the Princess Bride as equivalent to Romeo and Juliet. Uh, perhaps Princess Bride's more pure than Romeo and Juliet. The Romeo and Juliet's got a bit more spice to it. It should be further down the scale. And. Yeah, I can. I I can't deny the influence of these things, but I have to admit, even at this level of the scale, I'm starting to get a bit eerie. Um The I, the idea of these themes, I could accept them in a sort of third person descriptive way of doing it in the game, but if I was having to act out these things, I I wouldn't be particularly comfortable. I wouldn't have to, I wouldn't want to be, plighting my troth to the GM pretend to be some NPC you know I wouldn't want to be whispering sweet nothings to my true love in, in a game or across the table to a player or something I, I wouldn't be really comfortable with that and yes perhaps perhaps like the little boy in The Princess Bride you know I'm just a bit of a prude perhaps I've just got like arrested development you know it's just like, oh not kissing again I mean I stopped role-playing when I was 15 16 about 15 or 16 about things about 87 or 1988 and uh, I didn't take up role-playing again till last year so I feel like I've been a bit of a time warp. Um, I feel like a bit of a man out of his time a bit. And, excuse me, perhaps I have just still got the sentiments of a of a, a teenage boy about these things, and a bit, I'm a bit squeamish about it all. But, um, and I think the thing that you described, uh, the little plot hook that you described, I could stretch myself to that in a game, as I say again, if was if it was done in a sort of third person, descriptive type of way, again I wouldn't be comfortable with it in a first person acted type of, uh, way of doing it. Um, and I think that's because, as apart from just general prudishness, once you get past this point, once it goes into other forms of romance, true sexuality. Um, you know sexual violence and seedness. I'm, I'm i'm out i'm it's, this is a sort of session zero level here i'm 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 drawing red lines at that point and i'm i'm saying i'm sorry i just i don't want to be part of those sort of things there was i mean i, I listened to your last podcast there where you had that little reading from uh, Liren about the species role playing game and uh, i was kind of really i was squir- squirming about when i was listening to that because and it's nothing against Liren because i think she's got a lovely speaking voice and I think that was actually possibly part of the problem. I haven't hear Liren's lovely speaking voice relating those rather grisly um, s- sexual, sexually violent descriptions ever. Oh, just, I found it really unnerving actually, and I, and I don't think I, I'm not a great fan of horror, and I don't think I'd want to be playing in those sort of games. And um, I think. If something like that was introduced into the game, when I, I wasn't expecting it, I think I may just be saying, "Look, okay, guys, you know, I'm just going to go watch television or something. I'm not. It's not really for me." And I think if you get the point where I've heard some some people, just some women, complaining that men have, you know, put rape scenes in games and, and it's driven them from the table. And I think my, myself, if someone introduced something like that in a game, I think I would just walk from the table as well. But f- further than that, although I have to accept the power. Of Romance and love as very strong thematic elements with with great potential for role-playing I think part of the problem is that romance and love can is such a powerful theme it can actually Overpower other elements of the game. It can overshadow them and uh, I've seen this happen in video games when I left role-playing Strange enough, I left role-playing to go off in search of real romance and the riddle of alcohol. Just to understand the riddle of alcohol. Perhaps the riddle of alcohol after 20 years of drinking, I realised I should never have started drinking. And the search for romance was a pretty sad, tragic one. I probably should have never abandoned role-playing games. But when I came back uh, from university, I I got myself a computer and I started getting into computer games. And I started playing computer role-playing games. So perhaps I never really left the hobby entirely. But I found that in some of them computer games, you know, like Baldur's Gate and Icewind Dale originally, and then never Went, Neverwinter Nights and later on Dragon's Age, and some of them games where they started introducing romantic plot lines, I found them a distraction from the main plot. And I found once those themes started entering the game, I started losing interest in the game, or I started losing interest in the other plot lines and elements within the game. Not because I was just chasing after the nudies. Which I possibly was in some of them, but I just, I would just lose interest, and I just couldn't maintain the focus on the main storyline. Like the Witcher game, I've, I've, I played the first Witcher game. I've never played the second Witcher game, and I think I've, I've played Witcher three. But both games, I've just lost interest halfway through because of because the romantic elements have come in, and I've just lost the sense of focus in the story. Um, the romance elements always seem to set up as a competing theme within the game and and that and therefore it distracts from the overall sense of the game and that's why i think what you described in your little message was quite an intelligent use of romance because rather than being a parallel theme and a distracting element of the theme it actually tied back into the main storyline it was actually a plot twist it 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 did actually relate back to that artifact that you'd been searching for in the in the in the dungeon so it was all part of the same overall plot direction but i found in like in many role-playing games the, the the romance plot lines seem to be entirely separate and go off in their own direction and um they kind of spoil the game for me and uh, it turns the turns the game into leisure sweet larry does the hobbit and that's not what role-playing games is to me and actually i also believe that not I mean, from my last podcast, I said I didn't want to limit myself on things, and 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 yeah, I, and as I say, how I've, I've got to accept love as a strong uh, theme, but also I believe actually limiting things within a game can prove a strong hook and a, a, a strong thematic element within your game, and it can produce a new direction and plot line for your game. So um, perhaps as an example, the, the the campaign that I created for my nephew that kind of went. Wrong. Um. Just before the lockdown, I was aware that I was creating this game for a, an eleven-year-old boy, and um, and I didn't want any inappropriate material in it. I didn't, and and I quite, and I, I still remember the satanic panic of the early and mid eighties, and I remember the psychological panic that accompanied that, and I I kind of remember it as a sort of spectator. It didn't really affect me directly, it affected other people in my country, and, I, and it certainly seemed to be stronger over in America but I was well aware of that them sentiments and them ideas and I, I didn't want any accusations of that sort of thing in the game so I, I decided well I, I, I'm gonna I don't want any demons in the game and I also said I don't want actually any undead in the game I don't want any vampires or any, any any horror undead I don't want any vampires or werewolves or anything that I could be accused of giving my nephew nightmares about you know so, so I'm thought i just going to take them out of the game but I, I didn't want to just just remove them from the game I wanted perhaps a reason to remove them from the game so I, I thought, I need a conceit here to explain away why these things aren't in the game. And th- so I thought, well, perhaps perhaps the land is covered in a network of ley lines, a matrix of power lines all all over the country, um, perhaps powered by power crystals. Power crystals are the nodes of these matrix. And this matrix creates a, a positive energy field in the land that prevents undead being created destroys undead that enter in it it's it's like being permanently in the sunlight for undead that are damaged by that um and also prevents dimensional travel prevents opening portals prevents demons and being summoned into the realm perhaps demons can come in from outside and undead can come in from outside but they, they don't last very long in the positive energy field and i thought right okay that'll do that's a good enough little reason and perhaps these things were perhaps, and i thought well, well okay now i've got that in my story What what does that mean what is it I thought, well, perhaps the elves, the, the ancient high elves and the ancient dwarfs built these things, and uh, perhaps there's something deeper. Perhaps it's not just, perhaps it's not just to protect the realm from undead and demons. Perhaps that's not the real reason they, um, and, you know, very few people are even aware that the, the the ley lines are there. Perhaps people just think this land is a blessed realm, and even the people that know that these ley lines are there, perhaps they don't really, really, really isn't the true reason. So, what could be the true reason? I thought. I'll tell you what. Let's have, let's have some dragons. Let's have some stereotypical dragons of elemental dragons, immortal elemental dragons that used to rule the land thousands of years ago, when the land was very different, almost like Jurassic style, and they ruled the lands and they were in charge of each elemental area. And that for a a reason that they they've had a war with each other. They um, I, I just I thought that perhaps the. Perhaps elves came from the sea. I've decided uh, dwarfs are going to be my first uh, intelligent humanoid species, and then elves were originally a sea uh, species, and then uh, under the control of the the dragon of the of the waters, and that then the dragon of the airs saw these elves frolicking in the in the shallows one day, and she fell in love with them and decided she wanted them for her domain and would like them, so she taught them to leave the sea and breathe the air that she was in control of and come under the the land and perhaps she taught them encouraged them to climb up into the trees to get as close to the sky in her realm as she could in the hope of perhaps one day making them develop wings and fully join her in this in the in the years and, and 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 I'm, and I thought yeah that's that I'm kind of like tying in some concepts of evolution here um but explained in a sort of magical way and then i thought yeah perhaps Perhaps that then perhaps the the dragon of water found that out and got jealous and demanded the return of her creations and her her children in her mind, and the dragon of the air refused, and then that started a war. And then the dragon of earth, who was the spouse of the dragon of air, came into the war on the the side of the on in his spouse, and then perhaps the dragon of fire joined the wars well on the side of the dragon of water. On the pretext of fairness, but really because he just wanted to get involved, and it being the, the Dragon of Fire in action, he just wanted to get in on the chaos, and the, the the the, the fun of it all, and perhaps he was attacking all sides, and and perhaps this this new all encompassing war was ruinous to the land, and it it started to destroy the, the entire species were destroyed, the old dinosaurs, the old plants, old trees, mountains, were leveled, swamps were drained. Plains were flooded and the whole land was on the verge of being utterly destroyed. And it's at that point that the dragon of the earth, realising his folly, thinking himself a virtuous creature, realising that he wasn't, decided that the only way to stop the destruction of the world is to remove the dragon. So he agreed to sacrifice himself and he taught the elves and the dwarfs uh, how to build these power crystals and create this network this, of, of ley lines to effectively create a giant imprisonment spell. That would trap the dragons out of time and out of uh, the mundane world into little demi dimensions of their own. And uh, and that's what happened, the elves and the dwarfs built this network and then at the point of time they snapped the trap shut and the, the, the dragons were banished and then it was left to the elves and the dwarfs to rebuild what was left of the world. And so by actually introducing this limiting factor, I've suddenly got a story, I've got a history for my, my campaign setting. And very quickly after that, I quickly created an economy, I created a social, political environment, I created uh, religious environments, uh, ecologies, I created a map, and it, it all just poured out on me very quickly, a very, very derivative type of uh, setting. But it all come from this limiting factor. So I actually think... Limiting elements from your game can be a powerful story arc as well as making sure you don't just remove things. So I think I'll leave it there. Um, It's gone, obviously, longer again. It's more than just a bite-size podcast, this. Um, I hope you've appreciated that, Jason, if you've listened. I hope you found it of interest. I hope I've perhaps explained my position on it a bit better and I'd like to thank you for giving me the opportunity to think about what my thoughts are on this and I've quite actually enjoyed this opportunity of bit of introspection on this matter so thank you for being the catalyst for this. Um, I also want to thank you for that little uh, tribute you did to John Saxon as well another little nice little tribute podcast. Um, It's a bit bittersweet because I'm aware that when you're doing these tributes it sometimes means we've lost somebody. But John Saxon was one of those actors where I always used to recognise him and he used to pop up on things and you would say, oh, it's such and such, but I can never quite remember his name. Um, I don't know, he was in uh, End of the Dragon. But for me, as growing up, it, it was always... It, my main memory of him was in um, Battle Beyond the Stars, where he played the villain Battle Beyond the Stars, which was that really slightly naff Star Wars rip-off, um, which, which actually was quite saucy in itself in a way. I mean... From the shape of the protagonist's ship down to that um was it Sybil Denning as the Valkyrie character? It was uh, it was quite a sexual film in itself in many ways. Uh but yeah. And uh that was it was actually there's some there's some great it's it's the Magnificent Seven in space, isn't it? And it it's got some classical archetypes that are really cliched but kinda of pretty useful for role playing games really. And uh, I also remember a vague memory of him playing in what I thought was an episode of um, Planet of the Apes from when I was a kid, and and I, and I couldn't quite and, and and I wasn't sure. What, so I looked it up on Google, and I realised no, it's not. It's it was Gene Roddenberry's uh, Planet Earth film, and um, and the, and the, and the sequel to that, the um, the pilot films he was making, um, that Strange New World, I think it was in. It was actually from that that I remember him. And I've since I've watched uh, and and the, and the, there was a film before that Genesis Two, which didn't have John Saxon in. But since since that the podcast of yours, I've I've watched uh, Genesis Two and I've watched Strange New World and um, I've also watched uh, Battle Beyond the Stars again as well this week. Um, I haven't had a chance to watch Planet Earth. I, I I couldn't find a free version available on YouTube, and I don't want I don't want to look anywhere else. And I, I think if I'm going to forget that, I'm going to have to probably pay for it, but. Uh, So thank you for also um, just providing me with some ideas for my uh, movie viewing this week as well, Jason. So um, thank you for the chance for this podcast. I hope you found it valuable. Um, Perhaps speak to you soon. Uh, Take care, stay well, and enjoy your gaming.
1: the Akira believe that no form
0: ends until all the lives that it has touched until all the good that it has done is gone. They are now a part of Akir, and
1: they'll always be with us.